0: The scripture reading for this morning is Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But when the Pharisees heard that he, that is Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, it's good to be uh, back with you, back in the pulpit. I've been worshiping with you. uh, It's a blessing to be able to worship with you guys every Sunday, and uh, it's also a blessing to be able to open up the Word of God with you. I'm going to tell you where we're heading over the next couple months, okay, just to give you an idea of where we're going. Um, You may recall that around this time last year, I preached a series on gospel culture. Gospel culture is the shared experience of God's grace by undeserving sinners. That's every one of us. The shared experience of God's grace by undeserving sinners. That experience of God's grace is gospel culture. Gospel culture is formed in a church as gospel doctrine. The message of God's grace for undeserving sinners is taken to heart. But culture is a squishy term, isn't it? I mean, how do you define a culture? It's, it's something that's felt more than anything else. It's an ethos. It's a vibe, right? The vibe at Grace Church is a, is a lovely vibe, but how would you kind of break that down and then, and then reinforce it? What are the beliefs and behaviors that that we could reinforce, that we could celebrate as a church in order to deepen our gospel culture? It's an important question to ask because jesus prayed for that kind of culture at every church that would be a people whose love and worship of god would be such an expression of wholeheartedness before the lord that the unbelievers with us would go man this god is real that they worship that's paul in 1 corinthians 14 and also that that jesus prayed that our unity our love for one another would be so demonstrable that, that people would look and say man the Son of God, whom they worship, He must be real. He must be true. So, these things that make up a, a, a culture of a church—they really are. They really are touchstones. They're indicators that Scripture gives us that we can seek to, to reinforce, to celebrate, to cultivate, in order to deepen gospel culture. So, beginning next week and over the uh, the rest of those, the rest of August, really the, the remaining three weeks of August, uh, we're going to look at three biblical touchstones or indicators of gospel culture. The first two Sundays in September are going to be on stewardship. The first Sunday, September 3rd, is going to be on financial stewardship. The second Sunday in September, the 10th, will be on stewardship of our spiritual gifts. Uh, September 17th, that weekend, we are actually hosting Presbytery. The Presbytery is uh, the the PCA churches in New York State outside of Metro New York. Metro's got their own Presbytery. We, the rest of us, in the entire state of New York, all 15 churches, PCA churches, we need to plant more PCA churches, uh, come together three times a year in order to, to do business. Um, someone who it was great. Last time we hosted two years ago, uh, someone was here helping run sound and do some of the technical stuff, and I was like, man, how you doing? You having fun, like, this whole day that you're here? He's like, I'm seeing how the PCA sausage gets made. <laughs> this is interesting, right? So we have a, we have a speaker that weekend. Um, his name is Garnet Zollner. Garnet is a pastor and theologian in Montreal. He's actually a member of our presbytery as well. He's going to be speaking that weekend. He'll be opening up the Word of God with us that Sunday morning on the 17th of September. September 24th, Lord willing, is going to be the Sunday that we uh, ordain Eric Walter to be an assistant pastor at Grace Church. Yeah. He is nearing the end of the road. He's, he's turning the last corner. It's going to be a wonderful celebration. And so please make every effort to be here. We'll be celebrating that. Uh, we'll be laying hands on him and adorning, uh, adorning. We'll be adorning him with... We, 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 in some way, a little capital, you know, little a, not capital A, adoring him even, but ordaining him is what I'm trying to say uh, on Sunday the 17th. I'm sorry, sun, Sunday the 24th um, of September. October 1st, I'm going to be preaching on what the Bible has to say about elders and deacons as we get ready to launch our officer nomination season. And then on October 8th, fasten your seatbelts, we're going to begin a series in the book of Hebrews and we'll be in Hebrews at least throughout the rest of the ministry year up through the end of June. I can't imagine we're going to get done with Hebrews before the end of June. So I honestly can't imagine doing Hebrews in less than like 30 sermons. So plan on picking up Hebrews again in uh, September of 2024, and then, um, man, what a, what a blessing that's going to be. So that's, that's where we're headed over the next uh, two months, really, August and September. And then leading into October. This morning, we're going to look about what Jesus says about loving God. Uh, One of the books I read on vacation was this book, With All Your Heart, Orienting Your Mind, Desires, and Will Toward Christ by Craig Troxell. Uh, I hold it up to remind you that basically anything I say that's of worth this morning is either directly from Scripture or it's from Craig Troxell's book. Okay, this this book, I, I read this book and I was like, I can't wait to preach on this topic. So we're doing it this morning. Um, it also is going to set us up well for uh, the gospel, you know, touchstones of gospel culture series that will begin next week. In the book, Troxel challenges us to think about all the ways we use the word heart. Right? Just think for a minute about how we use that word. If you've had a change of heart, you've changed your mind, right? If your heart was in the right place, it means you messed up, but you meant well. If you speak from the bottom of your heart, it means you're telling the truth. Sometimes you don't have the heart to tell the truth, and so you stay silent. If you take something to heart, you've listened well. If your team has heart, they, they fought all the way to the end. If they lost heart, then they gave up. I mean, just that one word, and, and you know the list could go on and on. I heart New York. I mean, all these different ways in which we use that word. The question that we need to wrestle with as as believers or as curious people who are here this morning wondering what Christianity is all about, the thing that we have to come back to is what does the Bible mean when the Bible uses the word heart? What does Jesus mean in the passage when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart? It's an important question because the word heart is used just under a thousand times in the Bible more than any other word To describe the inner self so for instance the word holy is used more than any other word to describe who God is and so we know it's important to ask what does that word holy mean when it references God well in the same way we should ask what is the meaning of this word heart that's used just under a thousand times to describe who we are when Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all the heart, what I hope we'll see this morning is that on the one hand, it's an invitation to the best possible life. It's an invitation to wholehearted love for God, to loving God with all the heart in all of life. That's actually how we were designed to function. It's the best possible life. And yet at the same time, because Jesus is summarizing you know, the entire law of God in those in that command, it also is something that, We have to see how desperately short we fall of it. And I hope that we'll see this morning that all the ways in which we seek to find life, apart from that singular command slash invitation to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, will always fall short of what God offers to us. This sermon is really a prelude to the Touchstones on Gospel Culture series. I'm starting next week. It's actually foundational. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He's giving us something that's foundational for what it means to be a people who are living out a gospel culture. So we'll talk about that more next week, but but today I just want to have us look at three things. First of all, Jesus' invitation to wholeheartedness. His invitation to wholeheartedness. Secondly, our blindness to our brokenness. And then third, how grace makes us whole. So Jesus' invitation to wholeheartedness. Secondly, our blindness to our brokenness. And then third, how grace makes us whole. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to be together this morning. Do pray, O God, that by your spirit you would be teaching us from this portion of your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. All right. So the invitation to wholeheartedness. What does the what does Jesus mean, and what does the Bible mean by this word heart? At one level, that word heart is a summary word. It's kind of a, a catch-all word to describe everything that's true about us, everything that drives us. the The heart in the Bible is the operating center of your life. It's the it's the driver's seat of your life. It's the helm of the ship. It's it's it, it is a word that can at one level, describe the entire unity of who you are in the inner person. But it's also used to describe a number of different things that are true about us. So the heart describes what we think, but it also describes what we long for. The heart is uh, something that describes what we know, but also what we choose. The heart speaks to our ideas, but it also speaks to our feelings. The heart is used in the Bible to talk about what we remember and call to mind, but also what we yearn for and long for. So the heart's used as a summary word to capture it all, but also in Scripture it's used to, to actually name a number of these different aspects of who we are. Uh, Troxel gives a, a, a great example. He talks about um, an analogy that can be made between the way English-speaking people use the word snow and the way the Bible uses the word heart. So most you know, English-speaking people only use one word to describe that dreadful, white, fluffy stuff that, sadly, is not that far away. But we're not going to talk about that now. But one word to describe that stuff that falls from the ground. However, certain tribal people in northern Alaska and Canada have a number of different words to describe that word snow. A number of different phrases even to describe that word snow, because there's a lot of diversity in terms of type of snow and and all that kind of thing. So too with the word heart in the Bible. It describes the fundamental reality of who we are in the same way that we use the word snow as a catch-all for all that white stuff that falls to the ground. But also the heart breaks down each and every one of those different nuances of what it means to be human. So when Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and in other places, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's just getting at that idea that this is the totality of your being that I'm talking about. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Troxel does a great job of distilling all those nuanced meanings of that word heart into three, a threefold scheme. What we know, what we love, and what we choose. All our knowing all are desiring, all are willing. All the different nuances of the way you use the word—the Bible uses the word "heart"—can be broken down into those three categories. I hope you pick up the book and read it. It really is good. If you want to come up and take a look at it, you can. You can't have my copy. There will be a copy on the uh, out in the lobby starting next week that I think you can check out. So, you know, if there's a mad dash to get out of the sanctuary next week, I won't take it personally. I know you're, you're going after that book. All right. Here, here's the thing that, again, I want us to see. We, we were made to live this way. We were created to love God with all the heart. The Old Testament gets at this idea when it talks about walking before the Lord with integrity of heart. I, I want to just look at a couple passages. First Kings 9, 4, we read, As for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart. Keep that in mind. It's being said of David that he walked before the Lord with integrity of heart. We're going to come back to that in a minute. But let me go on. David says of himself in Psalm 101, too, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. David in Psalm 26, 1, I have walked in my integrity. And then it says of David in Psalm 78, 72, David shepherded them with integrity of heart. So I want to break down those two phrases. First, the phrase walk before. And second, the phrase integrity of heart. What does it mean to walk before someone? Alan Ross, in his uh, excellent commentary on Genesis, titled Creation and Blessing, says this, to walk before anyone is to live and move openly before him, especially in such a way as to in- in- deserve and enjoy his approval and favor. Tom Nelson, in his book, The Flourishing Pastor, says this, what is translated walk before me in Genesis 17:1, where God says to Abraham, walk before me is literally translated, walk in my face. The phrase communicates an intimate walk that is ever before and in the presence of God. So to walk before, you've heard the, the Latin phrase, Coram Deo, right? Before the face of God. You've heard the phrase, audience of one. That's what it means to walk before the Lord. It's to live before an audience of one. It's to live Coram Deo, before the face of God. So what about this phrase, integrity of heart? When you hear the word integrity, you often think of conformity to a moral code. That person has integrity in his or her work, or integrity in his or her relationships. It means that they, you know, are an upright person. But the Bible, when it talks about integrity, gets right to the heart. It's not just about the surface. It talks about right integration of the heart. I mean, think of the word integrity and the word disintegration, right? Right. To have integrity is to have things rightly integrated. Integrity of heart means that your heart, the core of who you are, is rightly integrated. Derek Kidner, the Old Testament theologian, points out that when it comes to that word integrity, its basic meaning is wholeness, usually in the sense of wholeheartedness. So to walk before the Lord with integrity of heart is to be wholehearted in your devotion to him. Wholeness is the key, such that you're no longer broken. Integrated is the key, such that within you there's no longer disintegration. We're no longer double-minded, half-hearted in our walk before the Lord. Wholeness, again, this is a picture of what it means to be human as created by God. The life we experience now is a life of brokenness, not according to God's design. The life that we're offered is a life of wholeness fullness as it was meant to be uh, the most expensive sports car in the world right now is the bugatti and i'm gonna it's a simple french phrase i'm still gonna butcher it la voiture noire how'd i do yeah, i got one of these <laughs> i i got a this from a french person yay it simply means the black car. I guess when a car costs eighteen point seven million you can 't just simply use an English or even in their case an italian phrase it 's got to be French. The Bucati black car has a top speed of two hundred and sixty one miles an hour. I love this. It has not one, not two, but six tailpipes. Uh, the thing that 's really cool, like we all have little vanity things on our phone or whatever the the little symbol on the front of the grill where it says Bugatti lights up at night, so everybody can know you're driving a Bugatti. $18.7 million. Now, if you were a Bugatti dealer and somebody came to you and said, I want to buy a Bugatti, and and you're doing all the stuff, and you're signing all the stuff, and you're like, man, I I bet you can't wait to get this out on the open road. And that person said to you, actually, I'm going to retrofit it. I'm going to slap a mower pan underneath it. I'm going to use it to cut my grass. You would fall out of your chair because that's not what a Bugatti was designed for. Bugatti was made to hug hairpin turns in the Alps right? A Bugatti was designed to blow by everybody on the Autobahn. It was designed for things greater than mowing the grass. Your life is that Bugatti. Now, kids, don't say to mom and dad, I'm meant for more than mowing the grass. (laughs) My very life is a Bugatti, mom. That's not going to work. You heard it here. You were created by God for wholehearted devotion to him. You were. It's often seen in inconsequential, seemingly ordinary ways. But to actually live an ordinary life of faithfulness out of wholehearted devotion to God, that is your hugging the hairpin turns in the Alps. That is our blowing past everybody on the autobahn equivalent it is the fact that it doesn't feel that way the fact that you're like you're crazy is just an indication of how disintegrated we are within because the god who made us has said this is what i created you for and in our brokenness we think that can't possibly tr- be true but if you've lived for any length of time, you've got that taste in your mouth that's terrible of trying to find life elsewhere. If you're here this morning, I hope what you'll come to realize is that the, the life that you have been trying to find in every other thing is found indeed in Jesus Christ. Living for yourself and the things of this world, living for glory or fame or success or money or gratification and sex or food and possessions or whatever else is like hooking a mowing pan to a sports car. It's not the way we were designed to live. So when Jesus summarizes the law as love, he's inviting us to live according to our design. At the same time, that very command is meant to reveal to us just how broken we are are. When we really understand what Jesus says, when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, that is the fundamental commandment. It sums up everything that the law of God says. When you you see what what the Bible means by that, on the one hand, we ought to see an invitation, but on the other hand, we first must see how broken we really are, but we're blind to it. So let's turn, secondly, to our our blindness to our brokenness. The Pharisees in this passage were absolutely blind to their brokenness. Let's go back to it. Verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, before you start, you know, slamming lawyers just understand that what this means is that he was a lawyer because he was an expert in the law of God. He was a Pharisee. He was a religious lawyer or religious expert. There are some 500 and I'm sorry, 613 commands in the first five books of the Bible, the the Pentateuch. And this is a test Jesus, which is the greatest. It's a test because if he were to say, well, this is one is the greatest then they could bring him up on charges because he's now slighting the law of God. All these other ones are less important. It's one of four tests in Matthew chapter 22 in which the Pharisees are coming after Jesus, just picking away, trying to undermine and expose him so that they can ultimately arrest him. There's two things that are being revealed, revealed here in the Pharisees, in this, in this teacher, I'm sorry, in this lawyer that we too often see in our own hearts as well. The first is an outright rejection of Jesus. And the second is an assumption that we're able to keep the law of God. They just outright rejected Jesus. I, I don't need you. You know, at best, you're a teacher, but I, I really have nothing to do with you. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, and maybe you're here against your will, like, why am I here? I, I hope that what you'll consider this morning is simply who is this Jesus. I hope you begin to ask that question this morning. Who is this Jesus? And and allow yourself to come to God's word and let Jesus himself answer that question for you. The the the, the Pharisees had their ideas of who Jesus was. They didn't Slow down long enough to listen to Jesus. You may be here this morning who's, you know, I, I grew up in the church, you know, I, I, I heard it all before. Let me ask you to consider that perhaps, perhaps what you heard did not align with what Jesus reveals himself to be, or perhaps you were told exactly what the Bible says about Jesus, but you just weren't listening. All right, will you be humble enough to acknowledge that both of those things may be true concerning you? And are are you willing to go back and say, okay, who is this Jesus, so that you don't reject him? But then secondly, and we all struggle with this, don't we? God is surely satisfied with my best efforts. I'm living a good moral life. You know, I'm, I'm, I've only broken a few of the commandments of God, but not all of them, you know? And, and, and surely God will be satisfied with me at the end of the day. Now, that's a dangerous place to be as well. Of course, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount kind of pulls the lid back and says, let me tell you about that law of God that is given by my Heavenly Father. He, he said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you that if you even think lustfully about a, a person you've committed adultery in your heart. You say you shall not murder, but, but let me tell you that if you even, you know, call your brother a fool, or of, actually more literally, a, empty, of no consequence, you've committed murder in your heart. If we will let the Word of God reveal the brokenness in our heart, we'll see just how deeply and fundamentally broken we are. Because we're, again, we're just like the Pharisees in so many ways. Scripture exposes our brokenness. Now, one of the things that, uh, that Troxell does in the book that's really awesome is he says, look, there's three characteristic words for sin in the Bible. There's the word um, literally can be translated sin the word that is translated iniquity and the word that's translated transgressions and each of those words have to do with the the mind the way that we think our, our will what we choose and our desiring and so he takes the word sin which means to fall short of what we know so the heart is about knowing and our sin hits us there we fall short of what we know The word iniquity describes sin's impact on what we desire. The word transgression involves a decision, a willful choice that we make to disobey God's law. Remember what I said about David a moment ago. David walked before the Lord with integrity of heart. David committed sin any number of times, but we have a record of one instance in particular his sin that he committed with Bathsheba, wife of Uriah, had Uriah uh, killed in battle, sent Uriah back to the front line with his own death sentence in his hand, a note to give to Joab that said, listen, I want you to, I want you to take the troops to the, the very hardest part of the battle, right to the, the very strongest point of the enemy, and then pull back and leave Uriah there so that Uriah will be killed. David, in Psalm 51, in which we see his confession of sin before the Lord, uses all three of those words for sin just in the first two verses. David says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He sees himself to be the complete and utter broken sinner that he is. He comes before the God of mercy, and he says, I'm a sinner. I've transgressed your law. My heart is crooked and perverted. It's, I'm I'm a person full of iniquity. Would you, O merciful Father, cleanse me, renew me, forgive me? So, so what's your, you know, we're going to wrap up here soon. But what's your take home? If you're sitting there going, okay, what am I supposed to do with this? It's not rocket science. Read your Bible. Live a life of repentance. I, I, I can tell you from personal experience that the longer you go without just simply daily going before the Lord and saying things like David says at the end of Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Or the the excerpt from the Book of Common Prayer that we used this morning. Most merciful Father, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what I have done and by what I have left undone, I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I'm truly sorry, and I humbly repent. The the longer I go without that kind of a rhythm to my life, the more and more distant I feel from the Lord, the less and less love I feel for God, the more and more convinced I am that I'm actually doing pretty okay. The Bible calls us to, uh, and the Spirit of God within us actually gifts us with repentance. Repentance a turning from sin, a returning to the Lord along the same path of our sin, confessing it to him and experiencing once again the renewal of his love for us. We need the word of God to remind us of our brokenness. We need the word of God to remind us of his wholehearted love for his own in Jesus. A repentance truly understood will be terrifying and never executed on. The grace of God, the kindness of God, leads us to repentance. So what's your take home? Read your Bible, practice repentance daily. Third, let's move on to this, how grace makes us whole. I, I want us, we're gonna, again, we're going to talk more about this next week, so I'm just going to touch on this briefly, but I, I want us to hear this verse from Psalm 147, verse 3. God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. There is, um, I was telling somebody, if I were to rate this on Goodreads, I'd give it 4.5 stars instead of 5. And the only reason why is because Troxel doesn't get into addressing this kind of brokenness. Brokenheartedness. He does a great job of talking about how sin has broken us at these fundamental levels that align with what we're called to live, our heart. But he doesn't get into this kind of passage to deal with this kind of brokenness where we need this kind of wholeness and healing in order to live for the Lord. Alec Matir, one of my favorite commentators on any book of the Bible, says this concerning uh, that word Uh, binds up. That phrase binds up in Psalm 147. Uh, Bind up expresses personal attention, soothing, healing, and restoring to wholeness. Heart, he heals the brokenhearted, is so versatile a word that brokenhearted covers any and every human breakdown from emotional prostration to conviction of sin. Wherever you find yourself along that Spectrum of either feeling brokenhearted because of ways in which you've been sinned against, or brokenhearted because of your own sin, or brokenhearted simply because we live in a broken world. Know that it is the Lord who brings healing. The prophet Malachi said this concerning the Messiah, concerning Jesus. He comes with healing in His wings to whom does god draw near the brokenhearted with whom is he pleased to dwell the weighed down the the crushed in spirit he comes to meet in his mercy grace heals our brokenheartedness but it's unto or for the purpose of wholeheartedness where does this love for god come from that jesus calls us to it comes from an understanding of his love for us. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We love, John says in 1 John 4.19, because he first loved us. And that we'll talk about more next week. Let me wrap up simply with this. We're called to walk before the Lord with integrity of heart. It's the best possible life because it accords with how God created humanity to best function. Sin makes that impossible and often even undesirable. But God's grace is greater than all our sin. The renewal God brings day by day is renewal in the whole person. By grace, we're increasingly able to live with all our heart and all of life for Jesus. Jesus came to live this kind of life he did the things that the, that the disciples, uh, I'm sorry, that the Pharisees couldn't see, were unwilling to see. Jesus came to live the completely wholehearted life for his heavenly Father, but he did not come simply as an example. Jesus said, picking up something Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 61, Jesus said that God sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Jesus was crushed for our sin. Jesus was pierced. For our transgressions. Jesus was crushed for our iniquities. At every level of our brokenness, Jesus bore the brunt of the wrath that we deserve, so that through faith in him we might be made whole. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. We pray that you would help us by your Spirit to practice repentance oh god you invite us to acknowledge fully who we are before you that we might gain access by faith into this healing that your son jesus christ provides so lord would you help us to be people who come to your word who see what's there who hear what you have for us in every portion of it that we might know more of what it means to be loved by you in jesus and we ask all this in jesus name amen